Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Cena Grace. I'm so sorry for any straight ladies there who are now looking at their boyfriends like in that show, Insecure, and being like, did you suck a dick? <laughs> he did. Like, don't worry, all of your boyfriends did. I'm sorry. That and more, but before that, I want to talk about one of my new favorite online stores, Thrive Market. I have had such a great personal experience getting my food, my, my kitchen supplies, my bathroom supplies, you know, your grocery shopping at thrivemarket.com. Now, we are talking the best, the most organic, non-toxic, BPA-free, non-GMO, no artificial ingredients sorts of products at 25 to 50% off shipped right to your door. You know what else you can do? You can do price comparisons right there on Thrive Market's site to see the retail price versus what they're charging. You know, compare it to, say, Whole Foods or any place you might have to go out to go to the grocery. You know, they cut out the middleman so they can pass the savings right on to their members. I was so excited. The box came so quickly. I got myself a bunch of Laura bars and some green superfood mix that I've been making smoothies with. They had grain-free cat food for donkey. I've got all kinds of soups and soaps, all kinds of stuff in the bathroom now. You can do specific searches. For example, if you're vegan, you can curate so that you're only looking at their vegan products. So you'll get $60 of free organic grocery credits plus free shipping and a 30-day trial membership if you go to thrivemarket.com slash risk. And keep in mind, their prices are already 25 to 50% below retail. You're going to be amazed at the quality and the selection at thrivemarket.com slash risk for $60 off and free shipping and a 30-day trial membership at thrivemarket.com slash risk. And just one more thing. It is so, 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 so very important to us that Risk fans pre-order the Risk book at theriskbook.com. This book is coming along beautifully. It's an amazing book. You're going to want copies not just for yourself, but for your friends. We need lots and lots. We need thousands of pre-orders in order to make it onto the New York Times bestseller list when the book gets released in July. And so far, we've got a few hundred. Uh, so, please, it's very important to us that everyone pre-orders and gets friends to pre-order and pre-order for your friends. And, listen, in the Easter egg part of every episode, I'm reading off the names of people who prove to me that they've pre-ordered the book by emailing me at kevin at com with a screenshot of your confirmation that you did pre-order it. And each week we're picking two or three people who, you know, we're going to give a special gift to for doing that, for sending in those emails at kevinatristashow.com, proving that you did pre-order the book. We've been having a ton of fun with this, and so have the winners so far. So, theriskbook.com, motherfuckers. Theriskbook.com. Now here's the show.
kids, this is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. This is Quincy Jones behind me now. And if you are new to Risk, because a lot of people are just discovering the show right now, you might be wondering uh, what all kinds of stories (laughs) we do run on the show. Well, this might give you an idea. I I think I've spent almost nine years now doing everything I can to make sure my mother never in any way is exposed to this show, which hasn't been that hard. I mean, she really doesn't understand what a podcast is. I'm pretty sure she is still a little fuzzy even on what an internet is. But in July, we're releasing the Risk book, and guys, my mom totally knows what a book is. If you were to say to her, hey, Carol, you ever heard of the thorn birds? She has. <laughs> but it makes me nervous to think of her reading the book because the Risk book is going to have some of the riskiest stories we've ever featured on the podcast. There, there's a story about cannibalism. There, there's one about someone who got tied up and lit on fire. There's like prostitution and, and, and drug overdoses, but most importantly, there's the story of the time that guy made me tie my shoes to my balls. I know if you've heard the story, you might be thinking, yeah, but Kevin, like, wasn't that like, I don't know, 20 years ago? Couldn't you just say, hey, mom, oh, no, 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 that's water under the bridge. No, I can't because I end that story in the book by saying, But now I'm approaching 50, and I'm a full, out, and kinky guy. So if there's something attached to my balls nowadays, it's more likely to be multiple pairs of boots. Anyway, that is what Risk is about. (laughs) Some of the stories are hilarious. Some are terrifying. Some are beautiful. And in our almost nine years, two have been about eating poo, which, when you think about it, is a fitting number. But through the years, we've always wondered if we'd ever have ourselves a full-blown scandal, you know, the kind of thing that gets international attention. And last week, we did. Do you know who Aubrey O'Day is? Aubrey has been on Risk three times now. She's a pop singer, reality TV star. She's gorgeous, but for someone who's so plugged in in Hollywood, she's remarkably down-to-earth and sweet and surprisingly honest, which makes her perfect for risk. You know, a lot of people with a certain degree of celebrity are pretty challenged by the idea of being on risk because they've learned to start second-guessing everything they can or can't say in public. (laughs) Not so with Aubrey. So, in 2012, she did Risk for the first time at our monthly show in Los Angeles. I host the show once a month in New York, and in L.A., it's hosted by our dear friend Beowulf Jones, whose real name is Beowulf Jones. Now, we always go over the stories with the storytellers beforehand. So, Beowulf and I got on the phone with Aubrey, and she told us a story of how she once worked on an unnamed reality TV show where she started having this illicit, tumultuous, passionate affair with 
an unnamed celebrity who was also working on that TV show. And the story was super fun with lots of twists and turns and that's all I really cared about. People are always joking that I should have my quote-unquote gay card revoked because, you know, among other things, I really couldn't give a shit about celebrity gossip. I wasn't even curious who the mystery man was. It's our policy that you should disguise the identities of characters in your stories. So anyway, I said to Aubrey, you are good to go. Go tell that story. She did. It was a hit. We put it on a fantastic 2012 episode called Women on Men. But Beowulf called me a little bit later and said, you know, after that show in L.A., people were having drinks, people from the audience. Some folks were whispering that they suspected the mystery man in that story was Donald Trump Jr. I said, oh, and hung up the phone and forgot about that for six years. I mean, for me, (laughs) that information was in one ear and out the other. Because when you think about it, even if I was the kind of guy who's obsessed with celebrity gossip, in the year 2012, I still wouldn't have given a shit about Donald Trump Jr. (laughs) But fast forward to Tuesday of last week. All right, the news had broken a couple days before that uh, Don Jr. and his wife are in the process of getting a divorce. But then the news broke, I guess anonymous sources or something like that, were claiming that in 2012, Aubrey O'Day and Don Jr. had a passionate, illicit affair when they were both on the show Celebrity Apprentice. But the way I found out about that little tidbit was that on Twitter, Various Risk fans were tweeting, Yeah, I always assumed that Don Jr. was the guy she was talking about in that crazy sex story that she shared on Risk. So I was nervous. I had to immediately run and go double check, re-listen to that story to make sure she really did keep it a mystery who he was. And she totally did. So I could honestly tweet back at people, No, we really don't know (laughs) who that story is really and truly about. But we started texting Aubrey to say, are you okay? You know, people are talking about that podcast story now. Well, she's staying completely mum. But by Wednesday, Risk was on page six, the most famous of all gossip columns in the New York Post. And within about 12 hours of that, it was being reported by the Daily Mail in the UK, by Inside Edition, by Elle magazine, by Perez Hilton. And the biggest article of all was in Us magazine, who described Risk as a sex podcast. So what'll happen next? I have no idea. I mean, maybe soon Aubrey will break her silence and spill all the beans. Our only regret is that those columnists didn't let everyone know that Risk is so much more than just a sex podcast. So our greatest hope is that if you're a newcomer and you came for the celebrity sex, we hope you'll stay for the cannibalism and the poo. Now, this week's episode is called 
babies. <laughs> One story about a real baby, but the first story we're going to share here is going to be about baby gays. Uh, this is Cena Grace. He told this story at the Risk Live show in Los Angeles. Cena is a graphic novelist and a comedic actor, a man of many talents. You can find him at cenagrace.com. That's S-I-N-A grace.com. Here he is now with a story we call The Tongue Masseuse. Uh, I am not going to talk about uh, death. I'm not going to talk about uh, relationships. I am going to talk about sex. Uh, it's one of my favorite subjects. I'm going to talk about when I was in high school and hadn't had any. But uh, I also want to talk about something else. Beowulf mentioned the death of his friend Hugh. That sucked. Uh, I had a friend die earlier this week, but I found out yesterday because he lives in Michigan. Um, and we had been intimate a few times. And... You know, obviously, I grieved and I was sad and it was, everything was weird and surreal. But then I also was like, oh, I can't like jerk off to the memory of you anymore because that's super weird. <laughs> this story is about J.O. Fodder and I just wanted to see if you're open to it. So anyway, um, I'm, I'm in high school. Uh, I don't look like this. I look a little more young and, and more insecure than I already do look. And uh, I have a best friend named Mikey. We are best friends, you know, in every way, shape, and form. One of the main things is that we both think we're bisexual questioning. And I feel bad for the, the bisexual community because I was one of those people that on my journey out of the closet, I was like, yeah, I'm totally bi. I love women. It's a, it's a spectrum. And I do believe it's a spectrum, but it wasn't a spectrum for me. I just liked penis. Um, and I'm of an age where I was downloading pictures on Yahoo groups because I didn't have proper internet back then. None of us did. We didn't have X2. You had to download JPEGs and it took forever, which meant I spent a lot of time and effort thinking about wanting penis. And I hadn't had any. Um, I hadn't had anything. And it was probably because I was like a solid six for high school standards. I just figured out that I needed to stop parting my hair down the middle um, and not shampoo it every day. Uh, like weird hair oil things. I didn't know that. So I was not the cutest, and Mikey wasn't cute either, per se. We were both solid sixes, six and a halves, for high school standard, Z, plural. And, um, but he would get it going. He would, things would happen for him. He would get guys, and they would be sometimes, for all intents and purposes, like straight, and sometimes not straight, but it didn't matter. He always sealed the deal, and that never happened for me, even when I was at a like, sleepaway camp for the Anti-Defamation League to do peer-mediating workshops with other like, enlightened students. I was in a cabin with Brian who ended up being gay, and we're like head-to-head -head talking about all of our feelings, and I still couldn't like, get him to kiss me or do anything. Um, because I was nervous. I, I just, you know, I wanted them to like love me. I grew up on WB shows, now CW, Riverdale, Friday nights. <laughs> But I couldn't make it happen. And at this point in my life, I'm like a senior in high school. I figured out how to dress myself, which was like a happy medium of like going to thrift stores, buying cool like old band t-shirts. Like I didn't even know them. You know, I was like, yeah, Aerosmith, whatever. 
get a grip. Um, no, I know Aerosmith, but uh, you know, yeah, like band t-shirt, jeans, like some Converse. I was good, passing as fuck. And then still always with the like, and here's my chunky mood ring on the index finger, just to let you know what's really going on. <laughs> um, but you know, no luck, no luck with men, no luck with women. And so I finally asked Mikey, I'm like, like how do you do it? Like, what, what, what's your secret? And he says to me, you wanna know what your problem is? And I'm like, yes, I'm asking, like, what's my problem? And he goes, you always aim for here. And he's pointing to his head and he goes, you need to be aiming for there. And he's pointing at my crotch. And he says, the minute you give guys a chance to think, they start thinking. So don't do that. Like, just put on some porn or something and just do what you're gonna do and then like aim for their lap. And I was like, whoa, that's a tall order for me. Like, <laughs> like how am I not gonna get beat up? And he's like, you won't, cause you're gonna be getting some. Um, I was still a little apprehensive. I, 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 that, that stressed me out to no end and I, I didn't think I could get away with it the way he did. I still kind of believed in the back of my head that his bedroom had some like secret Native American like sex curse, because those are things. Um, but you know, I did get one little like clue about a classmate, Johnny, to bring back the Anti-Defamation League. I was spearheading, while still in the closet, this uh, sort of gay-straight alliance, like anti-homophobia, anti-sexism workshop on campus. And uh, I was with one of the teachers, you know, working out like who to invite to this workshop. And uh, she's super apprehensive and she says, I feel so bad saying this, I shouldn't say this, oh my God. I kind of think Johnny is gay or asexual, I don't know. But to have her confirmation, like, oh, yo, you think he's gay? Like, I didn't, you know, I didn't say it like that, but I was like, I was like, mental note, Johnny. Cause he was pretty cute. He was like a little bit taller than me, completely bland, like a B minus human being, both in terms of grades and in terms of just presence. Like he was in the class, you know, you know when you think about your classroom and you're like, oh, that's, that's Iris, God, she was so hot. And like, that's Todd, we called penis Todd. But like, you never thought about Johnny. It's because his nose was shaped like a penis. And turns out, never mind, I can't say it because I said his last name, so I'm not gonna tell you that fact about him. But anyway, so Johnny though, Johnny, Johnny, Johnny. And he was pretty cute in that corn fed way. Um, so I was like, all right, I'm gonna like, I'm gonna go to chemistry class and talk to Johnny. And I go up to him and I'm like, hey Johnny, wanna hang out after school someday? And he was like, yeah, sure. Boom, done, on the books. And so cut to a few days later, we are walking to his house. And when I say house, I mean his mother's apartment in Santa Monica, uh, which looked a lot like my mother's apartment, which is a woman who was not from this country, came here and worked super duper hard uh, day and night to make sure she could, you know, feed and clothe her child. Uh, so she couldn't be bothered with things like, you know, matching furniture or uh, frames that could just, you know, be normal and not slanted and stuff like that. It was just sort of very, I'm just painting a picture for you of uh, the kind of place I was in when I was trying to do my thing. Um, so we get over there and Johnny hands me um, one of those big like CD booklets and they're full of uh, burn DVDs with movies he got off the internet. Again, this is before we had like a USB things that you'd get for free everywhere. Uh, and he's telling me to pick a movie. And I could lie to you and say, I don't know why I picked Barbershop 2. <laughs> but I remembered, I picked it because Alicia Silverstone is in it and I wanted to see her after Clueless and see what she was up to. I should have said basic instinct, you know what I mean?
So I pick the movie. He picks the food. He brings day-old Krispy Kreme. Still in the box. I was like, aw, babe. Um, And I'm not here to watch the movie, so I'm, like, watching the clock and just, like, counting the minutes. Like, okay, dude, if you don't do it, if you don't try something at 3.30, you gotta go. If you don't try something at 3.57, like, you need to leave. If you don't make a move at 4.08, like, you just gotta, like, walk out the door. So it's, like, 4.31 in, like, 20 seconds, and I finally just take a risk, and I start asking him about his dating life, and I say, like, oh, who are you dating? And he starts talking about his manager at Starbucks and how they make out in the back room. And I'm like, bro, like, that's not true. Like, who does that? Like, she has a motorcycle, too. I'm like, you're 17. Like, what would a bitch with a motorcycle want to do with you? Also in the back room, you know, like, I was like, but the, but the guy in the closet in my brain was like, that's a lie. That's a, he's hiding something lie. Back to you, Carrie. But I, but I used it to my advantage and called him on it. I was like, I don't think that's true, Johnny. And he's like, yeah, it is. And I was like, I don't think so. I think you're lying to me. I don't think you've even done anything with girls. And the boom in his voice just got weaker and weaker. It's true, it's true, it's true. Uh, and finally, I get the courage to do it. Because this is it, you know, like, a teacher's told me she thinks he's gay. He's kind of lying to me about dating girls. Like, that's kind of enough in the gay world. Uh, and, <laughs> and so uh, we're both, our eyes are both on the TV. We're not looking at each other. Um, we're both looking at Queen Latifah. <laughs> and I say, hey, you want to practice making out with each other so we're better for girls? I've never done this. I'd never done this. And he doesn't stop looking at the TV screen. He doesn't stop looking at Queen Latifah. And he says, okay. (laughs) So then, with all the, like, confidence I have and with all the, like, you know, experience I don't have, uh, I do what I think is the best thing, and I quote the 1999 Academy Award winning film for best picture, Cruel Intentions. (laughs) Does anyone know what the sentence I say next is? Does anyone know? Good. I lean into him and I go, massage my tongue with yours. Yeah, yeah. Sarah Michelle Gellar, she got a, uh, what was it, a a MTV Movie Award? You'll find out what I got. Um, So I kiss him, I start kissing him, and he starts kissing me, and uh, I'm like, oh, was I good? And he's like, yeah, am I good? And I'm like, sure, because I don't don't know what I'm doing. So we keep kissing, we keep practicing for girls. And, But the difference is, I know what I want. Like I told you, I was on all those Yahoo groups. I was spending all that time downloading pictures. I wanted the D. So I'm like heavy petting him. And I'm so sorry for any straight ladies there who are now looking at their boyfriends like in that show, Insecure, and being like, did you suck a dick? (laughs) He did. Like, don't worry, all of your boyfriends did. I'm sorry. But, uh... So, I'm heavy petting him, and, uh... And it's going pretty well, because I can tell, I can feel it. And he thinks he's heavy petting me, which is just him like rubbing his palm against my thigh. Like his eyes are closed. He's like, Um, 
But I'm like, okay, good. Like, I, you know, and I start to have the confidence. Like, he's not going to beat the shit out of me. He's not going to tell everyone. Like, I can keep escalating the situation. So I unzip his pants, and, you know, there is uh, Johnny's member. And uh, because, you know, back to the state of this apartment, you know, the, the blinds didn't quite work, and so people could see. And I was like, do you want to go to your bedroom? And he's like, uh-huh. And he's like scrambling to his bedroom like his pants are like you know down to his ankles or something and uh, I go there and I meet him there and he's on his bed like just waiting for me and uh, before I can see his penis there is a uh, a layer of um, mother purchased boxers they're like you know they're like one size too big Um, they're from Old Navy the colors faded you remember you remember so I pull those down because I needed to keep it sexy. And there is his manhood. And this story is about to get real graphic, but I don't care. Um, and it is uh, uncircumcised, like practically opaque in terms of whiteness. Um, no body hair anywhere except for like a tiny little tuft of soft golden pubes, like around the mons pubis. Do men have mons pubises? I don't know. I took female physiology, but male physiology was only a week, so I don't know much. But anyway, um, so there it is. There's the holy grail or whatever the fuck. And uh, I start going down on him. And before I could even be nervous and get in my head about like, oh, am I good at this? Is it, am I using teeth? Oh. Um, it, it gets soft and wet in my mouth. Like literally within those moments of me trying to formulate being anxious about it, um, and then I thought, oh my God, I am really bad at it. Shit. No, he came. He came real fucking fast. And, um, it, but it, like, it took me a minute. I was like, oh, okay, cool. I was like, I guess that means maybe I'm super good at it. Um, and, and, you know, I climb back up and I'm against his chest. And again, mind you, like, there's no body hair on this guy. And he has like inverted nipples. You know, he's just so fucking white. Um, and I'm kind of white, you know? So it's like, I'm calling him white. But anyway... Uh, he says to me, he goes, oh, do you want me to do the same to you? And I say, no, that's okay. I got to go. And it wasn't, I, I'll tell you the truth, because like, that's the whole point of this thing. It was because I was like nervous. I was nervous that he would see me, and, and uh, I'm hairy, and uh, I'm Persian, and I'm circumcised. And I, to me, like, I thought like, he'd see my dick, and he would just think it's this gross, like, Lovecraftian, veiny monster. <laughs> with like, you know, tendrils of pubic hair attacking him. And I didn't want to do that to him. So I said, no, I was like, no, we're good, we're good. And I avoided him after that um, for the rest of senior year. Even when he would come to my work, I worked at a comic store. I know, right, I made it happen in comics. Um, And he would, you know, he'd come in his basketball shorts and he'd have a little half erection. He'd be like, hey, leaning against the quarter bin. And I'd be like, hey, Johnny, okay, bye. Um, So I never even found out if like he was gay or if I just managed to pull off like the dopest cruel intention scheme on earth um, but the one thing I did learn because and I'm, I'm me and I have to like put a bow on this thing but like the one thing I learned was that uh, I didn't have to be like my friend Mikey I didn't have to kind of trick someone into fooling around with me I could use my words and that's just as sexy because the only times the only time times whatever the only time I've told this story has been with bedfellows to turn them on, and the craziest thing, every single fucking time it works for some reason, because dudes think with their dicks, so hey, thanks.
drops with my shoulder when you cried. I called in sick so I could comfort you all night. Now you got cold feet, well just let me break the ice, yeah. I did your laundry and I folded it. This is Risk. This is Theo Katzman behind me now. In a little bit, we're going to hear a big, long, beautiful, and uninterrupted story. But before we get to that, I wanted to let you know that if you live in California or Nevada, it's an exciting time right now. MedMen is helping to redefine the cannabis industry and empower people to exercise their right to purchase cannabis. MedMen is bringing a premium and traditional shopping experience to the cannabis space. All of the MedMen stores feature a wide range of products with knowledge and approachable staff to ensure you find what's best for you. Their shops are open for both recreational and medical cannabis users. Anyone over 21 with a valid ID is welcome. And MedMen is committed to providing the highest in quality and safety, so you won't have to worry about what you're buying. I've seen the photographs of the interiors of these stores. Wow, they're gorgeous. So be empowered to exercise your right to buy cannabis. Check out one of their eight retail locations throughout Los Angeles, Orange County, San Diego, and Las Vegas, or go to medmen.com to find your nearest store. That's M-E-D-M-E-N.com. Plus, exclusively for Risk listeners, visit MedMen and tell them you heard about them on the Risk podcast for $10 off your order. Limit one per customer. Terms and conditions may apply. Check out MedMen today. Also, when was the last time you checked your pay stub? or picked benefits at work, chances are it wasn't easy. HR software has been clunky and hard to use since, well, human resources has been a thing. One technology company takes a different approach. Namely, N-A-M-E-L-Y is the only all-in-one HR, payroll, and benefits software that employees love to use. Ready to clock in? No problem. Need to write a performance review? You can do that. Want to schedule some vacation time? Namely makes it easy to do, even from your phone. Namely also has a social news feed, like Facebook, where employees can share updates, celebrate birthdays, give shout-outs for a job well done. Namely doesn't just make work easier, it actually makes it a little more fun. Over 1,000 companies use Namely every day. If you're in HR or run your own business, it's time to see Namely in action. Get a free demo by visiting namely.com slash risk. One more time, that's namely.com slash risk. See how you can build a better workplace with Namely. 
And finally, these days you can get practically everything on demand, like our podcast. You can listen whenever you want, when it's convenient for you. So why are you still taking trips to the post office when you can get postage on demand with Stamps.com? With Stamps.com, you can access all the amazing services of the post office right from your desk 24-7 when it's convenient for you. You can buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter, any package using your own computer and printer. Then the mailman picks it up. You just click, print, mail, you're done. Couldn't be easier. We use Stamps.com at risk and the story studio, and we love it. And right now, you can use the offer code RISK for this special offer. It includes up to $55 free postage, a digital scale, and a four-week trial. So go to Stamps.com. Before you do anything else, click on the radio microphone at the top of the homepage and type in RISK. That's Stamps.com. Enter RISK. Our final story on this week's episode is a big, long, and beautiful one. It comes to us from Mariah McCarthy. You can find Mariah at MariahMcCarthy.com. That's M-A-C-C-A-R-T-H-Y. She's a writer, producer, and coach in New York. Here she is now. This is Mariah McCarthy with a story we call All in the Family. some context. I'm 26 when I take this pregnancy test. I am a playwright. So I am making jack shit in terms of dollars. I have a day job, which is very flexible and very poorly paid. Also, I defaulted on two student loans and three credit cards. So this is also the year that my paycheck starts getting garnished credit card companies are just calling me, sending me mail. I think one of them sued me. It was just bad news bears as far as my finances were concerned. And I lived with two roommates and there was just no scenario in which, yes, let's add a baby to this was like a thing. So that's part of what made it so easy to decide, okay, this is what's happening now. I'm living in New York City and my parents are in San Diego Even though my old bedroom was still vacant, I wasn't about to give up the whole life and community and everything that I had created here in New York for myself. I got the pregnancy test on a Friday, and I know it was a Friday, because Friday was payday, and I was so broke that I needed to wait until I had a paycheck before I could actually afford a pregnancy test. I went out and got the pregnancy test on my lunch break and came back to the office and peed on the stick in the office bathroom right before a coworker's birthday party. And I thought I was just taking it to set my mind at ease. You know, I'm probably not pregnant. I'm probably just being paranoid. Then I get two lines and it wasn't very dramatic. It was very quiet. It was a very like, oh, I guess we're doing this now because I already knew what I was gonna do. I was raised Catholic and I'm very pro-choice now, 
I just knew I would place the baby for adoption. I'm glad I could have gotten an abortion, but I just kind of thought, well, I'm curious about being pregnant. I don't mind actually having the baby. So when I got the two lines, it was just kind of this like, all right, showtime feeling. Like, we're doing this now. This is just a thing we're doing now. I found a nice gay or lesbian couple because I'm also queer. I thought that would be a nice like use of resources. So I come out and I find the coworker that I'm closest with. And I said, so I just took a pregnancy test and it's positive. And she's like, okay, so false positives are a thing. And I was like, sure, sure. So I decide to go to Planned Parenthood the next morning. I can't go after work. It doesn't stay open that late. And so that night, I go to Veselka and just eat my face off. And I get shit-faced on food because I can't can't drink alcohol. I go to Planned Parenthood. My friend can't actually come inside with me because it's a security risk. And I have to pee in a cup and then walk back through the room full of people with the pee in my hand and sit down with a social worker to get my results. And like the concern is all over her. I can't even imagine like the kinds of distraught faces she's seen. And so she's gearing up for that. She's like, so have you thought about what you'd like to do? And I'm like, yeah, I think I want to give it to a gay or lesbian couple. She's like, okay, so we work with this really great adoption agency and here's their pamphlet and are you okay? And how are you feeling? And I'm like, no, I'm good, I'm good. She's like, okay, well, you can always come here and talk to someone. And I'm like, okay, thank you. And I take the pamphlet and I text my friend, yeah, we're doing this. And I go into the the lobby and from the way we reacted you would have thought that I was keeping it like we hugged and jumped up and down oh my god you're having a baby and I was excited about this adventure I was like this is a really cool thing I get to do now so I went to the adoption agency that Planned Parenthood gave me the brochure for I sit down with this woman and she says it's not my job to convince you to choose adoption I am here to help you make the right decision for you. And that was huge for me. I wanted to account for all possibilities. I don't like to regret things. It was really reassuring to know that just by meeting with her, I wasn't boxed in to this path. And she she was so kind. She had this kind of sad smile like, Like, you know when you've got bad news for someone and you don't want to tell them so you're smiling? Like, she kind of always has that smile, but she just cares so much. Like, the way my friend uh, Diana put it was, she's she's always like, oh, you might die. It's okay. You know, that's, that's Debbie. That's my social worker. So I start meeting with Debbie and I give her my medical background. I get the birth father who I always referred to at the time as a friend whose privacy I'm respecting. I got him to give his medical info. Um, He mostly, other than like filling out paperwork and like touching base a couple times, he wasn't too involved in the process. So the agency really encourages open adoption. That's 
you know, studies have shown is better for the kid and better for the birth parents and adoptive parents. Like, it's just better all around. Open adoption is where the birth parents have some contact with the adoptive family throughout their life. It could be anything from one visit a year or like just photos and letters and phone calls or a lot more contact than that. It could be like a lot of visits. That sounds great. I'm interested in that. And she asks like how open of an adoption I'm interested in. I'm like, oh, maybe visiting like once a month. And she's like, okay, so most families are interested in closer to once or twice a year. So let's just all know what the expectations are. (laughs) And at the same time, I'm also living my life because I'm not going to let something like pregnancy stop me from being who I am because life's too short. So I'm starting a theater company and we're planning to do this show in an apartment. I also am continuing to date. I've been meeting with Debbie for a few months now and we've kind of run out of things to talk about. And I tell her one day, I've been having breakdowns and stuff in between starting to meet with her and now. Like, I've had moments of crying in the street and having moments of, like, deep, deep self-doubt about, am I doing the right thing? Am I going to regret this? Could I parent a child? I couldn't make the math work, but that doesn't mean I wasn't still doing math in my head. So I get to this point with Debbie and I'm like, no recent breakdowns, feeling good. And she says, okay, do you want to go ahead and look at the book? The book is an ugly orange plastic binder full of families, one of whom will get your child. And it's got their photo on one side and they've written a letter to the birth mother and it's got their occupation and their religion and how open of an adoption they're interested in. I'm looking through, I'm making a list of families I want to know more about. And Debbie walks in with a brand new sheet for the book and sets it down in front of me. She says, this just came in. And I look at it. It's two men. It's a mixed race couple. They're beautiful. They're interested in open adoption with up to four visits a year. One of them is a surgeon and one of them does theater like me. So I'm like, "Uh, yeah, yeah, let's find out more about them. So we make an appointment to meet, and from the minute they come in, it's like we're old friends. We hug right away, and we're like shooting the shit, like we've known each other forever. Everything is just feeling right. John, the surgeon, asks me, what do you want for your baby? I'm kind of like, you really want to give him space to be himself and express his creativity in whatever way he wants I start choking up and I look over and they're choked up I think even our social workers are choked up and I have to just stop because I'm overwhelmed and we kind of all just like take a breath together and I think that was the moment that sealed the deal So 
so then we're taking a picture to commemorate the occasion and we're wrapping up and getting our stuff and i say oh what do you guys think of the name hunter and they're just like uh they just freeze one of them makes a joke like i just don't believe in hunting and they're like we just found out the baby's gender today we didn't know what what if we email you and so we make a google doc of possible names and we name the baby together and one of the names on my list is leo and they say oh we thought of leo too we decide to make hunter his middle name and now that he's leo and not hunter when i've been thinking of him as hunter now the baby's not mine anymore because if he were just mine he'd be hunter his name is leo and now i can't stop thinking of him as leo so he's theirs two days after meeting them i have another breakdown and i go into my therapist's office and i just flop on the couch and i'm just weeping i'm just like they're perfect i can't find a thing wrong with them and so that means i can't find any reason to back out of this if they're so amazing i can't not do this There's this part of me that's so excited, that's so electrified by this meeting with them. And then there's this part of me that thinks, Jesus Christ, this is really happening. I'm really gonna do this. It wasn't real before, it's real now. I'm like six months along at this point. I'm very much showing. I'm just crossing over the border into the third trimester. The deadline is looming and now they're waiting. So all in the same week, I meet this beautiful gay couple. I have a breakdown in my therapist's office and I ask Irving on a date. I'm at my friend's show and everyone's gone to the bar afterwards and I'm drinking water. And I overhear this conversation between friends and friends of friends. Irving, whom I've just seen on stage, is talking about his difficulty meeting women to go out with. I'm hearing him go on with this story about going on this date with this woman that didn't really click, and I'm like, I should just fucking ask him out. He's hot, he's talented, he is clearly looking. So from the subway platform later that night via Facebook Messenger, I ask him on a date. And we are two attractive adults on a date with each other one of whom is very, very pregnant. So we're walking along the Hudson, we're at the water's edge, it's a beautiful summer evening, and he starts laughing to himself, and he's like, so how wrong is it to be attracted to a pregnant woman? And I'm like, what? I asked you out, we're on a date, like you know this is a date, right? He's like, yeah, yeah, no, I knew this was a date. I'm like, it's understandable that you'd be attracted to me, I look good, and he's just, cracking up and he's just like yeah you do and we make out and he's finger blasting me on the Hudson is what's happening like I'm wearing a dress it's summer so it's not even dark yet and then he stops and the exact words he says to me are I so want to take you home and have sex with you and I'm like okay and he's like what And I'm like sure and he's like wait really and I'm like yes really he cannot understand an affirmative response. 
And so I finally convince him that I'm serious. I'm like, okay, how, how long has it been for you? And he says, three years? I'm like, oh, okay, okay, I get it now. So we go to his place and we have very quick sex because it has been three years. It's also my first time being this large and having sex. It's a little painful, but it's also really fun. We do it again in the morning, and then there's a second date, and he talks too much on the second date, and I'm like, let's just go home and do this again. And this time, we figure out whatever repositioning thing needs to happen, and it's like, awesome. And I'm like, okay, this is a thing. Like, I really like this guy. Then we have a third date, and I notice on the third date that he's drinking very fast. He stops mid-conversation and says, can I talk to you? And I'm like, oh shit, I thought that's what we were doing. And we go into like a more secluded corner of the bar and he's like, okay, I really like you. I really like talking to you and spending time with you. Sex with you is weird. And I'm like, what? I thought the sex was really nice. He's like, it's way too intimate for me and I have intimacy issues and like, I really want to have sex with you, but I also really don't want to have sex with you because I know the baby's going to be there. You know what I mean? And so I'm trying to like be a politician about it and I'm like, well, you know, we're going to have to stop having sex eventually because a baby is coming out of me. So it's really just a question of timing, right? It's just a question of now or later. So what about later? What if we stop having sex later? He starts laughing to himself again and he's like, I'm a terrible person. And I'm like, what? He says, do you want to go have sex in my office right now? Of course I go and have sex in the office because this is me we're talking about. But I've got this sneaking suspicion that the reason he wants to go have sex in the office is because it'll feel less intimate and because we don't have to sleep over afterwards. And I notice that he doesn't hold my hand on the way there. Afterwards... The maintenance guy catches us spooning naked on the floor, so we get out of there. And I just check and say, so am I coming over? And he says, I I wish you could, but I really can't. And we're making out on the street and it just feels sad. And I don't know why it feels so sad because we haven't actually said this is ending or, or decided anything, but I can just tell. And, and so we're making out on the street and he finally stops and says, well, I could do this all night, but, but he goes and he gets on his train and I go and get on my train. I'm wearing this short dress. We had been fucking without a condom and I'm just like <laughs> trying not to get semen on the subway seat. <laughs> I can feel it dripping out of me and it's just compounding the sense of shame and feeling disposable that I'm feeling in this moment. I'm just confused and sad and I'm pretty sure I've been dumped. And I had just had this feeling the whole time we were having sex in the office that this was going to be the last time. I shoot him a note on Facebook Messenger just to make sure. And he says, yeah, it's just... This feels so intimate and close, and not that I only think of you as a good time girl, but it just feels way more intense than the casual thing we're both looking for. But if you wanna hit me up after you have your baby, 
let me know. I'm just like, great. Here's one more way in which someone can't relate to me because of what's happening to me. The thing about being a birth mother in America in 2012 when this is happening is you don't know any other birth mothers your own age because there just aren't as many here as there used to be because our birth control and access to abortion has gotten better. People don't really know how to relate to what's going on with me, and I don't either, because I'm figuring it all out for the first time. The thing is, when I got pregnant, I didn't know any New York theater maker single moms, and I didn't know any birth mothers. So no matter what I did, I was going to be forging my own path. And either way, I was going to have to be figuring it out alone. And so now here's this other thing just thrown in just for fun to make me feel even more alone. Like, you're too weird to fuck. And I'm big, I'm so pregnant, and New York City is full of all these fucking stairs. My feet hurt all the time, and I can't afford an air conditioner, so I'm like running towels under cold water and putting them over my body so that I can just like sleep at night. I am so blessed in so many ways because I have this totally supportive, liberal, non-judgmental community around me who support my every decision and who are so happy to go to appointments with me and show up for me and buy me food and take care of me. But I'm also really fucking alone. That was one of the moments where I felt it the most. By that point, I was only like a month away from giving birth. So I didn't have that long to think about it (laughs) before it was like showtime. I was no longer going into the office anymore because my doctor told me not to. And, you know, go in to check up every week to make sure everything's going okay, see whether they need to induce me. I go in for one of these appointments. They tell me, oh, your fluids are low. Drink a bunch of water, go to the hospital, and have them run some tests, but they might induce you tonight. So I was like, well, if this is going to be my last supper, then I'm going to make it a good one. So I go to the place right next door to my doctor's office with Diana and Eddie to have this like nice leisurely dinner of like crepes and shit. We head down to the hospital together. They run these tests on me. They keep me waiting for hours, and then finally they're like, We're not going to induce you tonight, but come back in the morning just so we can make sure everything's okay. So instead of going all the way back to Queens, I crash at Diana and her roommate Lita's apartment. The next day, I take a bus to the hospital. Another friend, Emily, meets me there, and we've gone there super early in the morning. They run the tests again, and they say, there's meconium in your amniotic fluid, so we're going to induce. So one of the cool things about the birth father not really being in the picture is that I had all these friends who wanted to know, hey, do you have someone to go to the hospital with you? Suddenly, six people are descending upon the hospital. And one of them is my doula, Wendy. Wendy was connected to me through the adoption agency. She's my age, and she's a nurse and a med student, and she's super high energy. And she's a birth mother like me. She is, at this point, 
the only person I have met who has the life experience to understand what I'm going through. And so she kind of bursts into my life and she's like, oh my God, you're so brave for putting yourself out, out there with all this. I can never do that. My family still doesn't know. I cried for like a week, but you'll be fine. I see my baby all the time. His mom's like the big sister I never had. How are you feeling? Text me anytime. What's up? And I'm just like, whoa, okay. I got like whiplash a little bit, but I also was like, oh, thank fucking God. Here's someone who knows what's happening. So Wendy and the rest of, they called themselves Team Mariah, are all at the hospital, but I can only have two people in the room with me at a time. So everyone else would hang out in the lobby, which is like 10 floors down, and like rotate in and out and do like shifts. I reach a point where I am ready for an epidural. And my friends are kicked out, Wendy's kicked out, it's just me and Vanessa, and the epidural technician is sticking pins and needles in my back, and Vanessa's standing against my knees so my legs don't jerk too much with the shock, and she's squeezing my hands, and I'm taking deep breaths, and she's like, you're doing so good, mommy. And then the epidural is over, and I am no longer in pain, and the epidural technician leaves, and it's just me and Vanessa again, and she asks if she can ask me a personal question. And I say, sure, and she says, why are you giving your baby up for adoption? And honestly, I can't answer because my mind is just on so many other things right now. Like, I am so relieved to finally be doing this part of the process and I'm so excited for this part of the adventure and happy about having this baby. I just can't access that part of my brain right now and it's like too complicated to explain so I just say it's complicated but I tell her that my son will see me it's an open adoption and she says well that's good as long as he knows his mommy was a good person and educated and she just had to make a hard decision you're just too nice of a person for him not to know you I don't actually remember if I said anything to that but it felt really nice to hear and the epidural kind of made me sleepy, so I took a little nap. And when I woke up, Diana was there and she had brought me a teddy bear. It was such a beautiful day. I was up on the 10th or 12th floor or something. It's way west, so there's this view of the Hudson. The sky was like cotton candy blue. And so I'm going along and I'm just hanging out with my friends and I'm live tweeting my progress and they're reading to me and I'm not feeling the contractions anymore so no one needs to squeeze my hand on the contractions. And, but then I, like, I start to feel the contractions again and Vanessa's like, if you've had an epidural, you shouldn't be feeling the contractions. So the doctor comes in and looks at me and she's like, oh, you're just dilated to nine centimeters without breaking a sweat. It's pushing time soon. And I'm like, oh, okay. I did not know ahead of time how long is a long time to push. So I did not know that the three hours that I ended up pushing is a long time to push, but it's a long time to push. So the doctor says to me, okay, so what we could do is we could stick a suction cup on the baby's head. And she starts to explain to me like all the potential complications of doing this. And I've already decided, I'm just like, yes, fucking let him have a pointy head. I don't care, bring him out. Like pull him out, pull him out, fucking pull him out. What are you waiting for? Pull him out. Um, and so they do the suction cup and it's really just two big pushes and he's out. It's just like 
and he's out. He's covered in chalky green slime and he looks like an alien. Vanessa has stayed two hours past the end of her shift to do this and meet my son. And she cuts the cord. I kind of can't even process anything at first, except just, oh, okay, I don't have to push anymore. Emily and Wendy are crying. Emily tells me, oh my God, he's perfect. But I technically still haven't met him because they're cleaning him up while they're finishing stuff up with me. So they have to have me deliver the placenta and then they have to stitch up my vagina because I've torn during labor. They're doing all that and they're cleaning him off and putting him in linens and shit. And then they hand him to me. And it is so true, the cliche about what they say when you meet your child. You do fall in love right away. It's instantaneous. He was just so fucking cute. He was so soft and he wasn't crying and his big dark eyes were looking up at me. And I was just like, oh, hey, buddy, look at you, you know? And they took me to recovery. He was a very chill baby. He didn't cry much. I only woke up when they brought in someone else to share the room with me. I tried to breastfeed him and he just kept passing out on my chest. It was just great. It was, it was one of the best days of my life. Because I had all this love in all directions. I had the love of my friends, and I met Vanessa, and I had this love for her and from her, and I had this love for my son. Everything was just right and beautiful. And I didn't know how I was going to feel later, but I knew that this was amazing and so for the next two days in the hospital people are coming and visiting me and coming to meet leo and my social worker comes in and she holds him and we do all the paperwork we got to do day three is when we're gonna have to leave the hospital separately He's not going home with the gay couple yet. There's this program called Cradle Care that my adoption agency did where a volunteer takes care of the newborn for up to 30 days after childbirth. So the birth mother has the chance to get her senses back and not be a hormonal postpartum mess when she makes the biggest decision of her life. And I knew this was going to be terrible, and I just had no idea how terrible. Like that morning, I was sitting with Leo in a rocking chair and looking into his eyes and I was saying, are you sad because today we have to say bye-bye? And I started to feel like a little preview, a little sneak peek of how much it was gonna hurt later, but like just like a flash of it. Mostly it was proceeding like any other day. Friends were visiting. They had to take Leo away at one point because and I'm very proud of this, his balls were so huge that they needed to do a sonogram to make sure it wasn't a hernia. And like, 
I'm a feminist woman. Like, I don't necessarily want to admit that I was proud of my baby's big balls, but I was 1,000% proud of my baby's big balls. And it was just water retention. He was fine. So then my social worker says to me, okay, it's time. My friends start crowding around him to say goodbye. And I start feeling this sense of panic. And I'm like, hey guys, can I get a moment? And my roommate has left by that point and my friends leave and my social worker leaves and it's just me and Leo. And I hold him and I walk him over to the window and I show him the world outside and I'm like, okay, buddy, it's a big scary world out there but I'll always be there for you. And I just said, I love you over and over. And I said, I don't wanna do this over and over. And then there was just nothing else to say. And so I was just holding him in silence for as long as I could. And then Debbie very, very delicately knocks on the door and pokes her head in and comes in to start strapping him into a car seat to take outside. And I'm looking at her and I'm just like, this is really hard. And she just gives me her sad smile and says, I know. And the moment she leaves with him, I literally collapse. I fold in half. Like my stomach just can't hold me up. And Diana and Emily are there and they catch me and I'm sobbing. I'm crying harder than I've ever cried in my life. And they catch me and they take me over to the bed and I've got the teddy bear that Diana brought me and I'm holding the teddy bear and I'm crying. There's nothing they can say. They're just comforting me and rubbing my back. And once I can actually talk again, I say, I still think I'm going to do it. And they're like, well, you don't have to decide right now. And I'm like, I know, but I think I'm going to do it. And Emily gets us a cab and I cry in the cab and I cry when we get home. And there's just lots of crying. There's just lots of crying. And there's also lots of friends coming over and lots of people bringing me food. I drink alcohol for the first time and it's kind of anticlimactic because I'm too fucking sad to enjoy it. And during cradle care, I get to see Leo once a week at the adoption agency. So the volunteer comes in from Long Island where she lives and I come in and we meet at the adoption agency and we can hang out for an hour every week while I'm in the process of making this decision. So I go in for the first visit, which is just three days after leaving the hospital. I'm a mess. Like I got a flu shot while I was in the hospital because it was free and I am having flu symptoms on this day. So in addition to all the other postpartum body bullshit and tits that think they're supposed to be feeding something right now so they're rock hard and hurting and I'm bleeding so much and my whole body is just feels like it's been hit by a truck I also feel like I have the flu everything just fucking sucks and I sit down with Debbie because Leo and the volunteer aren't there yet and she's like so how's it going and I just fall apart and she's like oh you really bonded with him, didn't you? And I'm just like, yeah. I'm just like a bloody pulp of emotion. And 
The volunteer's name is Carmela, and Carmela walks in holding Leo. I just light up. I'm just like, hi, baby. I'm so excited to see him that I don't even feel sick anymore. I hold him, and he's so cute. And Carmela is like an expert at this because she's a volunteer for the agency, and she just takes care of newborns. That's just what she does. She's telling me about how nicely the circumcision is healing, and they teach me how to change a diaper. And when they leave after an hour, I don't cry this time, and I'm okay. It's somehow massively, massively easier to say goodbye now. The next week, there's another visit. Instead of an hour, this one goes for like all afternoon because Carmela is doing a training at the agency that day. So I get to just hang out with Leo, and he's sleeping, and his arms are twitching in his sleep very, very cutely. I'm just staring at him. And I start singing to him. And the song that comes out of me without even thinking is Mariah Carey's Always Be My Baby. Which is a really interesting song to be singing right now. And I kind of realize as I'm singing, I'm like, huh, have I already let go? Have I already decided? And I realized that I had. As much as I wanted to keep him, as much as I wished I was living the life where I could have kept him, I had this session with my therapist on the phone that first week I was home from the hospital. And I'm crying at her. And she says, I wish I knew what to say to you. And when your therapist doesn't know what to say, then there is just no fucking hope. And the conversation I had with my therapist was me doing the math. I say, okay, let's say I move in with my aunt in Westchester. Let's say I stay there long enough to save up to move into a new apartment. Let's say I find a studio apartment for this much a month. Maybe that's a really, really optimistic amount, but let's say it exists somewhere in New York. Let's say I find out how much the birth father would owe in child support, let's say, you know, and I like start compiling this scenario in which I can make it work. And it could have worked. If multiple best case scenarios worked out, I could have financially done it. But the next words out of my mouth are, but then what? Because I'd still be a single mother in New York City alone with a newborn, and I would stop writing and producing plays for at least a little while, because I know for a fact that given the three full-time jobs of raising my son, making money, and making art, that making art would always come last. I know that. And I know I'd probably resent that. How fair would that be to Leo? And I think about how angry I got as a child when I thought that my mother wasn't following her dreams. And I think about John and Peter 
about these two men who have paid the adoption agency what I was making in a year for the privilege of becoming parents. I think about the schools they'll be able to send him to. I think these men will never have to decide what utility they can put off paying so they can afford a doctor's copay. I can't even pull creativity rank because Peter's also a playwright. So what do I have to offer? All I have to offer is my love. But he still gets that love if I choose adoption. I go home from that visit with Leo where I was singing Mariah Carey to him and I text my doula and I say, Wendy, I think I'm ready to let him go. And she says, I'm so proud of you, but I'm also hurting for you. I know exactly how you're feeling right now. Do you feel like you have all this love inside you that you just don't know what to do with? I said, yeah. And I said, Wendy, there's this like ache inside me I never knew I could have. And she says, I know, I know. But he will always know how much you love him. And I said, I... I have so much love, I don't know what to do with it, but I do know what to do with it. I have to love him so much that I let him go. So I gave myself the weekend to think about it, just to make sure. And then on Monday, I emailed Debbie and told her I was ready. So then I came in to sign all the paperwork, and Diana sat with me and was just silently present while I signed everything. The paperwork is really, really strongly worded. There's no questioning the fact that you are relinquishing all control and all parental rights. And I'm calm. I don't lose it. I face all this like strong, harsh language and I'm just okay. And the next day is the placement, which is basically just a baby handoff party. I come in early and I meet with Debbie and she gives me a ring from the adoption agency to symbolize the circle of your new family and the love between mother and child, which just like a circle can never be broken. I wear it around my neck and never take it off. And I get one last visit with Leo and he cries for most of it. And I'm like, bitch, it's our last visit. Why you gotta be a jerk, come on. And mostly I just stare at him And then Debbie comes in and tells me that John and Peter are waiting in another room. And I walk in holding Leo and I say, this is your son. They're just kind of like, oh my God. (laughs) And we pass the baby back and forth and we take lots of pictures. And there's a lot of laughter. Peter's not sure he's holding the baby right. He keeps asking if he's doing it right. They're changing his diaper and I'm watching, I'm like, your job now and um, at the end of the visit they had this car seat that they just bought because you're not supposed to buy too much stuff for the baby beforehand in case it doesn't work out so that you don't get your hopes up so they had just bought this car seat and they're strapping him in and they asked if they could give me a ride home but I needed some time to myself and 
I hug them goodbye and I kiss Leo goodbye and I just walk around. There's a playground like across the street from the adoption agency so I'm walking by that and it's like evening by this point. It's like sunset. I have an email from a friend who knew that the placement was today and the email went something like, my friend, my brave, brave friend, come have veggie tacos with me at my home in Astoria tonight. And she ended the email with, you are so loved. You are so loved. You are so loved. And what I did not know in that moment is how joyful it would be to create our new queer little family. I didn't know about the Mother's Day brunches and Thanksgiving dinners and ornament making parties that would happen later. I didn't know about how obsessed my son would eventually become with my cat Sophie. I didn't know how it would feel to pick him up at school for the first time. I didn't know how it would feel to hear him say I love you for the first time. I didn't know how it would feel when we were standing in line to make water balloons and he's like, I have a yellow one and you have a yellow one and I grew in your tummy and you're my birth mother. I didn't know that that moment was waiting for me. I didn't know how amazing it was going to be to figure things out with his dad's as we wrote our own family rule book together. But I knew that I felt okay. So I take a bus to Astoria and I have the veggie tacos. We do talk about the placement and everything, but we also are talking about really banal things too. Like one of my friends has all these questions about blowjobs and we're given her tips. After this point, it's going to take me a really long time to put myself back together because this is a loss and I will have to grieve. I will have to discover who this new person is because I'm no longer the same person as I was before I got pregnant. It's going to be impossible for me to be around crowds for a while and it's going to be impossible for me to answer the question, how are you, for a while. And... It's going to take some time to recover, but that night I got to have a totally ordinary dinner with friends and drink wine and laugh and give blowjob tips. And when I went home as fried and exhausted as I was, it's not just that I was also okay but I knew that I was whole I felt the loss and I felt complete at the same time and I knew I was going to be okay
will drink the clear, clean water for the queen. And I shall watch the ferry boats and they'll get high On a blue ocean against tomorrow's sky And I will never grow so old again And I will walk and talk in gardens all wet with That is all for this week's episode, folks. This is Van Morrison behind me now. Now, in a little bit, I'm going to let you know where Risk is appearing live next, and we want you to pitch us your stories so that you might be a part of one of those shows. But first, I want to remind you about Namely, the all-in-one HR, payroll, and benefits software that employees love to use. You can clock in, schedule vacation, and more from your desk or on the go. Plus, use the social feed to share company news and give shout-outs for a job well done. Over 1,000 companies use Namely every day. Get a free demo by visiting Namely.com slash risk. That's Namely.com slash risk. Build a better workplace with Namely. Now, on April 7th, Risk is appearing live at NYC PodFest. That is going to be a remarkable show because we're not only having people tell stories, but we're going to do some Q&A with everyone as well. Melina Williams-Hawes is going to be there. Francesca Ramsey from The Nightly Show with Larry Wilmore and the MTV show Decoded. Gastor Almonte, Michelle Carlo, and Elna Baker. That is an all-star lineup when Risk is at NYC PodFest on April 7th. On April 21st, we're back at the Bootleg Theater in Los Angeles. On April 21st, we're in Pittsburgh. Folks, if you live in Pittsburgh, pitch us your stories. The optional themes that night for the stories are embarrassing or misfits or trapped. So April 21st in Pitch Pits. Okay, every single week I'm going to say Pittsburgh, Pittsburgh, Pittsburgh and have to stop and start and stop and start again. No, fuck it. We're just going to start going with Pittsburgh, my friends. Okay. May 17th, Kansas City, Kansas. It'll be our first time ever in Kansas City, Kansas. We're actually in Lawrence technically, but uh, if you live anywhere near Lawrence or Kansas City, Kansas, pitch us your stories. The themes that night are disgust, trapped, and coincidence. That's May 17th. Then on May 18th, we're in St. Louis at Del Mar Hall. The themes that night are we were young or abusive or guilty pleasure. So pitch us St. Louis folks for May 18th. May 25th is Atlanta, finally coming back to Atlanta on May 25th. The optional themes are plans and schemes, or love, or rebellion. 
So pitch us those stories, folks in Atlanta. Now, if you're wondering how, how do you pitch us here at Risk? You go to the submissions page at risk-show.com. There's all kinds of tips on how to brainstorm your story, how to prep a good pitch, how to even start working on your story. That's all on the submissions page at risk-show.com. Don't forget to pre-order the Risk book at theriskbook.com and email me at kevin at risk-show.com to let me know you did pre-order the book and you might be eligible for a little bit of a prize. And if you're looking for a little education around the realm of storytelling, you can find us at thestorystudio.org. That's one-on-one training, in-person workshops, and even corporate workshops at thestorystudio.org. Folks, today's the day. <laughs> Take a risk. Sugar baby. Sugar baby. Sugar baby. What a champagne People who have pre-ordered the Brits book, they have a lot of names like Lizette Ortiz and Sean Flynn and Carol and Drystat. What Drystat? Sorry. D. Hudson and Leland Shaw and Donna Fujita, Amusement Frazier and Audrey Avera and Brad Piper and Annika Moser. There's Sandara, Happy Heart, and Monica Gonzalez and Mallory Ashwander. Is Kevin Haddad and Alex Tan and Jennifer Van Matrur. There's Amy Bailey and Jacob Grossman from A Way Out and Emily Granberg and Charlotte Barnes and Elsa Ashelford and Alan Galen Galenzi. Sorry, sorry. And Richard Gelbin, Cindy Freeman, who I know. And Jessica Rodriguez and Maya Jacks. Also, Drew Register and Sharon Hoffman. Uh, 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 uh.